Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is June 30th, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Listen to Your Heart Score Mace Incidents in Non Low Risk Patients with Known Coronary Artery Disease. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He's an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He's also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGEM, Corey. Thanks, Ken. As always, it's good to be here. Uh, really looking forward to our featured speaker this time. Henderson McGinnis is someone I've known and admired for quite some time. Well, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but this winter I bought an indoor trainer to get in shape so I could go biking with you. Now that you've settled into your new home, COVID travel restrictions seem to be lifting. I won't need to get tested before I go to the United States or return. Uh, I think it's coming together where I could actually come and go for a ride with you. Absolutely, Ken. I would be happy to send you off a mountain. I mean, take you down a chill trail. Off the mountain. All right. So um, I'm going to need a spare bike. So you got a spare bike uh, that I could ride. And 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 where are you going to take me? Um, you know, on this epic ride that we're hopefully going to do. <laughs> well, so there's a whole lot of riding around here. The, the probably the most, the closest and most accessible is Carvin's Cove. Uh, interestingly, the second largest municipal park in the country, right behind Central Park, actually. So it's a city-run park that's got about 40 miles of single track, and there's also a bunch of gravel, and there's also a whole bunch of national forest trail, depending on how we feel and what we want to get into. Sounds great. All right, let's get into a case, though, for today's episode of the SGEM. All right, Ken, so you are working a shift in your local community ED when a 47-year-old male presents with chest pain. His symptoms are moderately suspicious. He has a normal EKG, a history of hypertension. His father had a minor heart attack at the age of 63. With a negative initial troponin, this gives him a heart score of four. He has no history of coronary artery disease. You have been reading about the overuse of objective cardiac testing and wonder if this patient really needs admission to the hospital. Well, Corey, you know that chest pain is one of the most common presentations to the emergency department. And there has been so much ink spilled over the years of trying to find a way that we could safely rule out acute coronary syndrome in these patients. Multiple clinical decision instruments have been created to risk stratify patients and guide clinicians, things like Timmy, Grace, Mac, and then there's TMAC, and then HEMAC, and ADAPT, and EDAC, and oh, the list goes on and on. So the heart score was originally developed in 122 patients in the Netherlands and published in 2008. Bacchus and colleagues published their multi-center validation of the heart score in 2010. Since then, there have been several studies looking at this clinical decision instrument. Yeah, and actually we looked at the heart score pathway that it included a heart score at time zero and three hours using a cardiac troponin. And that was on SGEM number 151 with our good friend, Salim Razai from Rebel EM. Now, the bottom line from that episode was that the heart pathway, it appears to have the potential to safely decrease objective cardiac testing, increase early discharge rates, and cut median length of stay in low-risk chest pain patients presenting to the emergency department with a suspicion of acute coronary syndrome. In prior decades, including when our illustrious guest speaker was teaching me all that he knew of my attending and residency, 
nearly all patients presenting to EDs with chest pain were admitted to the hospital. Ken, when I was in residency, we were taught if we thought about ACS, we brought them in. This would be for objective cardiac testing, including stress tests, CTA, and or invasive angiography. However, this recent research into clinical decision tools and pathways to risk stratify these patients has been very helpful in reducing admissions and therefore ED and hospital overcrowding. And many patients that get risk stratified as non-low risk are admitted. But the benefits of objective cardiac testing in this cohort is really unclear in the absence of an elevated troponin or an abnormal EKG. This study we're going to be reviewing today on the SGEM seeks to answer if the presence of known coronary artery disease is predictive of major adverse cardiac events, MACE, in a previously identified non-low-risk group of patients. All right, Corey, give the actual clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's podcast. What is the 30-day incidence of MACE in patients who are non-low-risk but have known coronary artery disease? And the reference? McGinnis et al., Major Adverse Cardiac Event Rates in Moderate-Risk Patients. Does Prior Coronary Disease Matter? From Academic Emergency Medicine, June 2022. Oh, yes. This is hot off the press. And we're squeaking in on June 30th, just getting it in at the end of the month. All right. So let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Adult patients age greater than 21 years old with chest pain or suspected ACS. Here, greater than or equal to four, elevated troponin, ischemic EKG, or prior coronary artery disease. And then they excluded patients with evidence of an ST segment elevated myocardial infarction and patients who were identified as low risk by the heart pathway. What was the intervention? Assessment of moderate risk patients as described in the inclusion exclusion criteria. Yeah, and then they don't have a comparison group. So let's go to the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? 30-day MACE defined as the composite of all-cause death MI, or coronary revascularization. And the secondary outcomes? Individual components of MACE composite at the index visit. All right, and how about the study design? This was a pre-planned subgroup analysis of non-low-risk patients in the heart pathway implementation study. The original study was a prospective, interrupted time series of accrued adults with possible ACS from three U.S. sites in November 2013 to January 2016. And as mentioned earlier, this is an SGM hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Henderson McGinnis is a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist. He is the medical director of Air Care, the system's critical care air and ground transport service. He is also the fellowship director of the Wilderness Medicine Fellowship at Wake Forest EM program. Welcome to the SGEM, Henderson. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, Henderson, I love this the picture that you sent for me to use on the blog post. Now, we're doing a podcast, so could you describe the picture to the listeners? Sure. It's, uh, it was taken on one of our training days uh, for wilderness medicine experience as part of our emergency medicine residency and fellowship on the uh, New River in West Virginia. We... Uh, we were out having a good day and enjoying some some of the finer points of emergency medicine uh, experience in the non non academic setting. 
Well, I think Dr. Glaucom Flecken would have really liked this picture because, you know, it looks like you've got a, a helmet of some kind on, you've got some sunglasses, obviously doing something adventurous outdoors. I guess the only more stereotypical would have been if it was a cycling kit with cycling glasses and a, and a cycling hat. That, that would have been better if we'd had the bike, the bike helmet there as well. It, that, was, uh, that was at the car still, so I need to meet up with you and Corey for a bike ride sometime. Let's get back on track. Henderson, can you describe how the heart pathway was fully integrated into your electronic health record? Because that was an important part of this study. Right. So that was actually the, the basis. The original study was, was designed by our uh, senior author, Simon Mahler, who pretty much forced the heart pathway down our, down our throats. I mean, uh, made it uh, part of what we did every day. He was very, very much um, a pioneer at our facility in doing this and really tried to come up with a way to make this uh, practice changing pro- program for us. So it started off as we were filling out the heart pathway on paper on paper first, you know, doing a heart score on paper. Then it became a clinical trial, which this data came from. Then there was some education for the providers. And now it's sort of hardwired into, well, it was hardwired into Epic as a sort of a pop-out tool when it was kind of a little crappy calculator for as a pop-up in Epic. And then three years ago, the Heart Pathway 2.0, which kind of uses a smart fire app technology, get launched, it launches in Epic. So it's really a seamless process. So you don't even realize that you're coming out of Epic to do it. And it automatically populates into the chart. So with that, we've had improvements in, in our number of patients being discharged with the integration of the heart pathway. And it's, it's really, it's made it so that everyone is, is able to do it without any major impedance to, to, to the process. Yeah, I really like to see uh, electronic health records used uh, for what they can do well and having something auto-populate for you so that it just doesn't bring up another pop-up form that you have to actually manually input all the data that is already captured in the EHR, that it auto-populates it for you. So I think that's great. Um, but let's, uh, let's talk about your paper a bit here. Uh, we usually start with the author giving their conclusions. So can you give the conclusions to this study, the ones that you published in the abstract? Sure. So MACE rates at 30 days were low among moderate risk patients, but were significantly higher among those with prior coronary artery disease. All right, Corey and I are going to do a quality checklist for clinical decision tools, then cover your results briefly, and then we're going to dive into our nerdy questions. Corey, you ready to go? Sure am. All right, the study population, did it include or focus on those patients in the emergency department? Yes, it did, Ken. And the patients, were they representative of those with the problem? They were. All important predictor variables and outcomes were explicitly specified. Unsure. Now, is this a prospective multi-center study, including a broad spectrum of patients and clinicians, a a, a level two? Uh, It is not. All right. And the, the clinicians interpreted individual predictive variables and scored the clinical decision rule reliably and accurately. Yes, they did. And Ken, the data aren't presented in this paper, but the answer is yes for the heart pathway, which this was derived from. Okay. And is this an impact analysis of a previously validated clinical decision rule or a level one? No. 
So I guess we can skip question number seven. Uh, eight, the follow-up. Was it sufficiently long enough and complete? Yes, it was, Ken. And the ninth question, the effect size was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant. Yes, it was. All right, let's go through the results section. Out of the original cohort of patients, about 38% were classified as moderate risk with non-ischemic EKGs and negative serial troponins. The mean age was 61 years, just over half were women, and 30% had known coronary artery disease. Corey, what was the key result? Moderate risk patients with known coronary artery disease had a higher risk of MACE than those without coronary artery disease. All right, and that primary outcome was the 30-day MACE defined as the composite outcome of all-cause death, MI, or coronary revascularization. What were the actual numbers? So for moderate risk patients with known CAD, it was about 7% or 36 out of 508. For moderate risk patients without prior CAD, it was 1.4% or 17 out of about 1,200. And so if you calculate it, you can get a, a likelihood ratio negative for 30-day MACE among these moderate risk patients without prior coronary artery disease of 0.08. With the top end of that 95% confidence interval around that negative likelihood ratio point estimate, it goes up to 0.12. All right, how about the secondary outcomes? Individual components of the MACE composite at the index visit in 30 days. We're going to put a table in the show notes so you can see the details of those results. All right, time to get to my favorite section. Time to talk a little nerdy. Henderson, time to bring you back. You ready to talk nerdy with Corey and I? Absolutely. All right, we've got 10 questions for you. So the first one is about secondary analysis of a subgroup. And this is the biggest limitation of the study. And you identify this upfront in your manuscript stating this is a secondary analysis of a subgroup of patients from the heart pathway implementation study. So how cautious should we be in interpreting these results until a prospective study is done specifically looking at the patient population that could potentially be discharged home from the emergency department? You're absolutely correct. We didn't design the study to address this particular question, but we were able to, to find this information out. And you know, we're not saying that, that we have to send all the moderate risk patients home, but it does point to the safety of sending home patients with, without known coronary disease in those moderate risk patients. The, you know, w one of the things we're hoping to do with this data is, is to do an additional study of a prospective study looking at moderate risk patients and trying to decide specifically how we should appropriately manage them because we have a great deal of variety among our providers some people will stress everyone that's moderate risk. Some people will send people home. Some people will admit them. And it, it's not as bad as it was before previously, like when Corey was training, when we, if you thought about it, you admitted everyone, just like if you think about an LP, you do it. If you think about ACS or think about, you know, high risk coronary artery disease or moderate risk, you would immediately admit those folks or put them for objective testing. This is, this is a way for us to, 
I think, start addressing that. And it's been practice changing for us, at least for me and many of my colleagues to not just instinct, not just rely on instinct, but actually use some, some data that is not all subjective and a little more objective when we're evaluating these, these patients. Well, that's great to hear because science is iterative usually. And so it takes steps and usually they're baby steps. Uh, and this sounds like you're going to do a prospective study and take another step forward, hopefully forward, and investigate this specific question. So I think that's great. Yeah, we, we certainly hope that, you know, our, that this data will be validated even further with the prospective study, but we're, anxious, we're really interested in finding out the, the, the best approach for that and truly the, the whole point of trying to find the best approach for our patients. So second question, prior coronary artery disease. This study hinges in large part on whether the patient had known CAD. In the methods section, there's no definition of prior known CAD. What entities does this encompass? So I think that was probably an oversight on our part. We, we described coronary artery disease in the introduction section, such as previous MI, previous cath with stenosis of 70% or greater, or stents, or coronary artery bypass grafting. And for the study itself, the, the provider, when using the heart pathway, would choose that the patient had known coronary artery disease or not. It was just one of the, one of the factors they put in. And so if they had known coronary artery disease based on what the information the provider had gathered that was that was entered in versus the the official true definition of that the um this obviously is a limitation of our study since we didn't have the independent validation of those of the history of known coronary disease through the study sure so you you relied on the providers yes or no going through and confirming okay right that's a limitation and that's one of the things that we would Certainly, we'll address in a, in a prospective study. The third nerdy point was about objective cardiac testing. Often, people are admitted to hospital for OCT, that objective cardiac testing. And this can be stress testing, coronary computer tomography angiography, or invasive coronary angiography. Our good friend, Dr. Justin Morgenstern at First 10 EM has written multiple blog posts on why he does not order stress tests. What objective cardiac testing are you doing at your center and on whom? So I would agree with Dr. Morgenstern. A stress test is really good to show you if the patient has a cardiac event during the stress test, but the predictive value of it is, is rather low, right? I mean, you're like, oh, they've got, they've got a massive major occlusion. You're going to find that on the stress test. Um, but for us at our, at our shop, most of the folks are getting stress echoes and that's based on oftentimes providers, provider preference and availability because of limitations of testing for other modalities on holidays, weekends, and low staff situations. Um, the, there's a bit of variability among who gets testing. As I said, we now have folks who are the moderate risk with a year of greater than four without known coronary disease, a lot of us are trying to send those folks home without doing the OCT in, in, in that admission or in that observation period, but to arrange it as an outpatient. That, that has been a little bit of a hiccup with COVID times because of troubles with people getting appointments and things like that. So if we looked back pre-COVID and, and COVID times, 
we've had some change. I think for convenience sake, some people are getting stress tests, even though we think they're not going to be beneficial because they're not able to get one as a, in a timely manner as an outpatient. I think it's interesting to think about one of the things that you're discussing there is arranging follow-up. And, and I remember from my time at Wake, even I guess now 12 years ago, it was much easier and there was a much tighter process for getting people in inserted into the system when you discharge them. I think many hospitals that I've, I've experienced or worked at a discharge is essentially a discharge and there's not really a good system for getting them plugged in short of every single chest pain patient you send home calling the cardiologist or somebody, which isn't necessarily a viable option on the busiest shifts. So I think that's interesting for our listeners to think about is when you're talking about sending these people home, you aren't necessarily saying send them out into the world and hope they get follow-up at some point, maybe possibly. You guys have a very tight system for who comes in the hospital to get it done essentially now versus who gets it done in a timely fashion. That, that's a great point. If you don't have access to that timely follow-up, then as we all know, for whether it's cardiac or non-cardiac, there are other, you know, other clinical conditions where we admit patients because we can't arrange close outpatient follow-up or no one can see them the next day. And so, you know, having, having a health system that allows some, some flexibility and some opportunity for folks to get close follow-up can reduce the, the hospitalizations that are of little benefit. Yeah, really important points to make because the literature informs our care, but it takes place in a clinical context. And if you have difficulties with follow-up, uh, even though the data may say it's safe to send them home, uh, it's safe to send them home as long as they're going to be able to access healthcare and have the appropriate follow-up. And so if they don't, then it may necessitate an admission. So in, your, in the previous discussion, we talked a little bit about the HEAR score which is basically heart without the T. Can you discuss this concept for our listeners and uh, if and how you suggest using it clinically? So the, the heart pathway has always used the HEAR score and troponins. That's the, the T in the, in the heart. The, the heart pathway is not the heart score with two troponins. So the heart pathway is actually a little bit of a different process in that we use the, the heart score, the HEAR score, and troponins and the EKGs and the story to kind of put things together because you can have an ischemic EKG and have a low heart score. But, you know, if you have known coronary disease, ischemic EKG, you could still be low risk in the, for the heart score. But the history section is an objective and not subjective portion. So it'll get you their hear score to their hear score because the troponin part is not as helpful from that standpoint when you're thinking about it. And now if the troponin is positive, obviously that's a whole different process. And I think, almost all of our listeners will, will look at that and say, oh, positive troponin, I have to do something about it. And you're not going to really think about their, their heart score or hear score at that point. Well, since we're talking about the T in the heart score, let's talk about this study not using high sensitivity troponins. Now, many places have switched over to this assay what impact, Henderson, do you think that this will have on managing these patients in the moderate risk category? Well, I think it's going to be even more helpful and more beneficial that and 
we're, we're probably going to see even lower rates of mace with the high sensitivity troponins in this group. And that's what one of the things we're looking for as we try and design the prospective study to kind of look and see how this moving forward, how, how this, if, if we're able to pull these people out a little bit more. So when you do this prospective study, will you be using a high sensitivity troponin at your site? We are, and we are currently using high sensitivity troponins now. So we're going to, to be using that. And I think the, of course, the senior author on this uh, paper is, is in, is in the works of trying to put together a, a I believe a multi-centered uh, study for this. Okay. So in the method section, you have different phases of study, such as pre-implementation, post-implementation, washing period. You also excluded patients with another chest pain visit within a year. Explain how these individual things influence the population. Yeah, so the, the one thing I think a lot of people think, why would you exclude someone who's had another visit within a year? Well, we all have loyal customers, right? Folks who just like your services and keep coming back time and time again. And, um, and so some of those folks will have pretty extensive cardiac workups and oftentimes have extensive cardiac history. So they'll get an extensive workup and they may be here the day after they had a objective testing or even a cath or, you know, some other process. And so you don't want to just repeat that. So we, we felt like if we had included those sort of chronic, you know, in quotation marks, chest pain patients, they would have sort of weighed on the pre-implementation group and made it look even better and would have biased our results. So we didn't, we felt like we would have, it would have made our, made us look good unnecessarily. And we didn't want, we didn't want to, we didn't want to do that. And so we, we obviously didn't switch them over into the post-implementation implementation group as well because of that. So we didn't want to bias our results in that, in that way. So can you describe a little bit about what you mean by the pre-implementation and post-implementation group? So the the first group was before we really formally got the the pathway started, people would come in and it was their first indexed visit for the for chest pain with the history of complaint of chest pain or having having troponins drawn. So they were included in that. And then that was kind of the the first sort of exposure of, of our providers doing the, doing the heart score, doing the heart pathway, following the heart pathway. And then we had, as we talked about sort of the implementation of the, the process where we were having all the providers do it. And then afterwards, after it was fully implemented, sort of seeing how that went as well. The seventh nerdy point we wanted to talk about was this 2% threshold and this gets back to my previous question about objective cardiac testing. Moderate risk patients with no coronary artery disease had a MACE event rate at 30 days of 1.4%. Now, this is below that pretest threshold of 2%, which has been determined to be a reasonable cutoff for getting objective cardiac testing. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you. I think our data suggests that they don't need testing as an inpatient. They can certainly get it again with that outpatient follow-up. And then this is really more support for why we need a, a definitive study to say who can and can't be sent home in these moderate-risk patients with, with or without uh, any objective testing. So this primary outcome of 1.4% is, is for the 30-day MACE but it's below, so it's below the 
acceptable rate for objective cardiac testing or for people who would need urgent objective cardiac testing, but it's above what many physicians would consider an acceptable miss rate for a bad outcome. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly. So of course we always want zero miss, right? We can't miss anything. Um, but we, uh, we understand that there is going to be some things missed. And so we try to limit and reduce the, the miss as much as possible. So our MACE definition included all cause death because we were using the electronic health record data to determine what had happened with people. So we may have inflated our base death rate since we had at least two that were non-cardiovascular where we had uh, a subarachnoid hemorrhage and cancer, you know, folks die from those things. So it's not really cardiac death, but they, they did die. So they're included in our study. So we, we actually have a conservative estimate. And if you take out revascularization, for, for these patients, the number of MI is actually very low. If you kind of dig a little bit deeper and add in the high sensitivity troponin, then we can get below that 1% rate we really feel like. That'd be really, yeah, that'd be interesting to see. So let's unpack those MACE events then, since you're diving into some of the details there. There were 17 MACE events that made up this statistic of 1.4% in the moderate risk patients without known coronary artery disease. This included four deaths, of which at least two were apparently due to non-cardiac causes. In addition, two of the three missed MIs were due to serial troponin protocol violations. If you recategorize those patients, and here I did the math, it would be 12 over 1,207, and that number is 0.99%. That would be below the 2% for objective cardiac testing and below that 1% threshold. You're, you're, you're correct. And that's that we didn't want to make ourselves look, you know, we didn't want to exclude the other people because we had already were using the electronic health records to, to identify that. But we feel that it does show that, that this is a safe process and a safe way to identify these patients for, for, discharge without testing in-house. And especially if you um, pull out the revascularization, because the revascularization made up the bulk of the composite outcome for MACE events. And revasc the, the decision to do revascularization um, is more subjective than all-cause mortality. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that you mentioned, Justin Morgenstern, earlier talking about not stressing patients. I think one of the things his reasoning uses is talking about how, what are the benefits of revascularization in somebody who's not having an acute MI? And so with most of these outcomes being revascularizations, it's questionable how much benefit that actually had to patients and how many of them are truly necessary. Right. And then the question becomes, would, would they, would these patients, would that subgroup of patients be better off getting such something like a cardiac MRI as opposed to a, a cath, right? Trying to decide if functionality versus just what the vessels look like. And so, and, and I know there's a lot of debate about MACE, including revascularization or not. And I think that that's actually a, probably a whole other episode to talk about if you include MACE or if you include revascularization within MACE or not. And because that often comes down to provider preference, uh, you know, for the provider pro performing the intervention. 
So is there anything else? Is there any other aspect of the trial that you'd like to highlight or discuss with us in this talk nerdy section? Well, you know, I think one of the things that's that's really come about is we went from an 81% admission and observation rate when you were with us, Corey, back in the you know 20, 2010 era to about 33% now with with the implementation of the heart pathway and the high sensitivity troponins is even helping that. Um, we really want to standardize the approach to these moderate risk patients so that we can safely reduce this number even more and reduce the need for inpatient or observation objective, you know, testing also reduce the need for unnecessary, you know, uh, testing and possible revascularization that may or may not be beneficial to the patient. But I think it's, it's kind of nice to see the evolution over time with this. What started out as something that was kind of a bother of this heart pathway, heart score. Hey, I just have clinical gestalt. I've been doing this for a long time. I know when people are sick or not. And actually seeing that we're really kind of crappy at predicting that sometimes. And so it's, it's really kind of fun to, to go back and say, well, you know, in your own little game, does this person have something or not? But this is a, this is a more, reasonable way of doing these things, particularly for folks who have, you know, maybe earlier in their career. So those of us who late in our careers still will hold to the fact that the patient doesn't look good. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, even though the score doesn't, doesn't tell me to. So you'll always have that. But I think if the more we can standardize the approach to these patients, the better care we're going to deliver, the more economical we're going to be the more you know, with our resources and, and with our, our limited and finite bed space we have available for us. And I think it's going to be a better outcome for the patients as well, because ultimately that's what we want is the best outcome for the patients. And, you know, no one wants to be in the hospital needlessly, but no one wants to die from because we sent them home when they should have gotten care. Well, thanks Henderson for bringing it back to being about the patient because it starts with patient care and it ends with patient care. And the reason we're doing this is so patients get the best care based on the best evidence. So I'm glad, you know, when we ask you, is there anything else you want to tell us about this study? You bring it back to that individual patient. Really well done. Um, Corey, uh, can you comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEMS conclusion? Yes, Ken, we generally agree with the author's conclusion. And can you give us an SGEM bottom line? It may be reasonable in patients who are moderate risk by the heart score but do not have existing known coronary artery disease to pursue outpatient follow-up instead of urgent inpatient workup. And can you resolve the case you presented? You discuss the situation with your patient and offer him the option of pursuing admission or close outpatient follow-up. He elects discharge after serial troponins and will call his physician in the morning. And so how are you going to take this uh, study, Corey, and apply it clinically? The Heart Pathway Implementation Study is a well-designed study of which this is a well-done subgroup analysis. The results are somewhat limited by the miscategorizations of the initial here heart score, but correct categorization would likely have further decreased the incidence of MACE for moderate-risk patients without CAD. The LR- for moderate-risk patients without CAD compared to those with CAD and high-risk patients was 0.08. This means it may be possible to further identify a group of low-risk patients, even among those who are initially categorized as moderate risk. And so what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? Based on your age, the features of your symptoms, and other risk factors, you're in a group that we consider moderate risk for negative outcomes in the coming weeks. 
However, the fact that you have no prior coronary artery disease may allow us to consider you low risk and discharge you home with outpatient follow-up. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Dao Risma. And I'm sorry I mispronounced your name. I know that for sure. And I was actually recently at a conference where there were some other people from the Netherlands, and I asked them to help me pronounce your name, and I still got it wrong. Anyways, uh, you knew that Riff was the name of the character in West Side Story who is fatally stabbed by Bernardo. All right, Corey, what's the question this week? In what year was the Nobel Prize awarded for the invention of the EKG? Yeah, so we're looking for the year that the Nobel Prize was awarded, not who it was awarded to. So what year was the Nobel Prize awarded for the invention of the EKG? And if you know the answer, then just send me an email at thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will be mailed a cool, skeptical prize. Well, now it's your turn, S-Jammers. What do you think of this episode on discharging moderate-risk chest pain patients who did not have a history of coronary artery disease? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Henderson and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Thanks, Corey, for uh, coming on this SGEM hop. And I am looking forward to finally, I hope, by the time we record another episode, to have actually gone on a bike ride with you and returned from such bike ride. Come on down, Ken. It gets really nice here in the fall. Summer can actually be kind of miserable. So the more, the more towards winter you can get, the nicer it'll be. And thank you, Henderson, for coming on and discussing your hot off the press paper. Thank you all so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's great to connect with you guys. Well, you know, the last opportunity you get, Henderson, is to read the SGEM tagline in your best accent. So can you give the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. <laughs> Talk to everyone next time. Yeah.